Section 22, Voltaire, Part 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Voltaire, Part 2 of 2, from the book Lectures of Colonel Robert Green Ingersoll, Volume 2. Toulouse was a favored town. It was rich in relics. The people were as ignorant as wooden images, but they had in their possession the dried bodies of seven apostles, the bones of many of the infants slain by Herod, part of a dress of the Virgin Mary, and lots of skulls and skeletons of the infallible idiots known as saints. In this city the people celebrated every year with great joy two holy events, the expulsion of the Huguenots and the blessed massacre of St. Bartholomew. The citizens of Toulouse had been educated and civilized by the church. A few Protestants, mild because in the minority, lived among these jackals and tigers. One of these Protestants was Jean Calas, a small dealer in dry goods. For forty years he had been in this business, and his character was without a stain. He was honest, kind, and agreeable. He had a wife and six children, four sons and two daughters. One of the sons became a Catholic. The eldest son, Marc-Antoine, disliked the father's business and studied law, he could not be allowed to practice unless he became a Catholic. He tried to get his license by concealing that he was a Protestant. He was discovered, grew morose. Finally, he became discouraged and committed suicide by hanging himself one evening in his father's store. The bigots of Toulouse started the story that his parents had killed him to prevent his becoming a Catholic. On this frightful charge, the father, mother, one son, a servant, and one guest at their house were arrested. The dead son was considered a martyr, the church taking possession of the body. This happened in 1761. There was what was called a trial— there was no evidence, not the slightest except hearsay. All the facts were in favor of the accused. The united strength of the defendants could not have done the deed. Jean Calas was doomed to torture and to death upon the wheel. This was on the ninth of March, 1762, and the sentence was to be carried out the next day. On the morning of the 10th, the father was taken to the torture-room. The executioner and his assistants were sworn on the cross to administer the torture according to the judgment of the court. They bound him by the wrists to an iron ring in the stone wall four feet from the ground and his feet to another ring in the floor. Then they shortened the ropes and chains until every joint in his arms and legs were dislocated. Then he was questioned. He declared that he was innocent. Then the ropes were again shortened until life fluttered in the torn body, but he remained firm. This was called the question ordinaire. 
Again the magistrate exhorted the victim to confess, and again he refused, saying that there was nothing to confess. Then came the question extraordinaire. Into the mouth of the victim was placed a horn holding three pints of water. In this way thirty pints of water were forced into the body of the sufferer. The pain was beyond description, and yet Jean Collat remained firm. He was then carried to a scaffold in a tumbrel. He was bound to a wooden cross that lay on the scaffold. The executioner then took a bar of iron, broke each leg and arm in two places, striking eleven blows in all. He was then left to die, if he could. He lived for two hours, declaring his innocence to the last. He was slow to die, and so the executioner strangled him. Then his poor, lacerated, bleeding, and broken body was chained to a stake and burned. All this was a spectacle, a festival for the savages of Toulouse. What would they have done if their hearts had not been softened by the glad tidings of great joy, peace on earth, and good will to men? But this was not all. The property of the family was confiscated, the son was released on condition that he become a Catholic, the servant if she would enter a convent. The two daughters were consigned to a convent, and the heart-broken widow was allowed to wander where she would. Voltaire heard of this case. In a moment his soul was on fire. He took one of the sons under his roof. He wrote a history of the case. He corresponded with kings and queens, with chancellors and lawyers. If money was needed, he advanced it. For years he filled Europe with the echoes of the groans of Jean Calas. He succeeded. The horrible judgment was annulled, the poor victim declared innocent, and thousands of dollars raised to support the mother and family. This was the work of Voltaire. Sirvin, a Protestant, lived in Languedoc with his wife and three daughters. The housekeeper of the bishop wanted to make one of the daughters a Catholic. The law allowed the bishop to take the child of Protestants from its parents for the sake of its soul. The little girl was so taken and placed in a convent. She ran away and came back to her parents. Her poor little body was covered with the marks of the convent whip. Suffer little children to come unto me. The child was out of her mind. Suddenly she disappeared, and three days after her little body was found in a well three miles from home. The cry was raised that her folks had murdered her to keep her from becoming a Catholic. This happened only a little way from the Christian city of Toulouse, while Jean Collat was still in prison. The Sirvens knew that a trial would end in conviction. They fled. In their absence they were convicted, their property confiscated. The parents sentenced to die by the hangman, the daughters to be under the gallows during the execution of their mother, and then to be exiled. 
the family fled in the midst of winter the married daughter gave birth to a child in the snows of the alps the mother died and at last the father reaching switzerland found himself without the means of support they went to voltaire he espoused their cause he took care of them gave them the means to live and labored to annul the sentence that had been pronounced against them for nine long and weary years he appealed to kings for money to catherine the second of russia and to hundreds of others he was successful he said of this case the servants were tried and condemned in two hours in january seventeen sixty two and now in january seventeen seventy two after ten years of effort they have been restored to their rights this was the work of voltaire why should the worshippers of god hate the lovers of men Espinas was a Protestant of good estate. In 1740 he received into his house a Protestant clergyman, to whom he gave supper and lodging. In a country where priests repeated the parable of the Good Samaritan, this was a crime. For this crime Espinas was tried, convicted, and sentenced to the galleys for life. When he had been imprisoned for twenty-three years, his case came to the knowledge of Voltaire, and he was, through the efforts of Voltaire, released and restored to his family. This was the work of Voltaire. There is not time to tell of the case of General Lally, of the English General Bing, of the niece of Corneille, of the Jesuit Adam, of the writers, dramatists, actors, widows, and orphans, for whose benefit he gave his influence, his money, and his time. But I will tell another case. In 1765, at the town of Abbeville, an old wooden cross on a bridge had been mutilated, whittled with a knife, a terrible crime sticks when crossing each other were far more sacred than flesh and blood two young men were suspected the chevalier de la barre and d'etalon d'etalon fled to prussia and enlisted as a common soldier la barre remained and stood his trial he was convicted without the slightest evidence and he and d'etalon were both sentenced first to endure the torture, ordinary and extraordinary. Second, to have their tongues torn out by the roots with pinchers of iron. Third, to have their right hands cut off at the door of the church. And fourth, to be bound to stakes by chains of iron and burned to death by a slow fire. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Remembering this, the judges mitigated the sentence by providing that their heads should be cut off before their bodies were given to the flames. The case was appealed to Paris, heard by a court composed of twenty-five judges learned in law, and the judgment was confirmed. The sentence was carried out on the first day of July, 1766. 
Voltaire had fought with every weapon that genius could devise or use. He was the greatest of all caricaturists, and he used this wonderful gift without mercy. For pure crystallized wit he had no equal. The art of flattery was carried by him to the height of an exact science. He knew and practiced every subterfuge. He fought the army of hypocrisy and pretense, the army of faith and falsehood. Voltaire was annoyed by the meaner and baser spirits of his time, by the cringers and crawlers, by the fawners and pretenders, by those who wished to gain the favors of priests, the patronage of nobles. Sometimes he allowed himself to be annoyed by these scorpions, sometimes he attacked them and but for these attacks long ago they would have been forgotten in the amber of his genius voltaire preserved these insects these tarantulas these scorpions it is fashionable to say that he was not profound this is because he was not stupid in the presence of absurdity he laughed and was called irreverent he thought God would not damn even a priest forever. This was regarded as blasphemy. He endeavored to prevent Christians from murdering each other, and did what he could to civilize the disciples of Christ. Had he founded a sect, obtained control of some country, and burned a few heretics at slow fires, he would have won the admiration, respect, and love of the Christian world. Had he only pretended to believe all the fables of antiquity, and had he mumbled Latin prayers, counted beads, crossed himself, devoured now and then the flesh of God, and carried faggots to the feet of philosophy in the name of Christ, he might have been in heaven this moment, enjoying a sight of the damned if he had only adopted the creed of his time, if he had asserted that a God of infinite power and mercy had created millions and billions of human beings to suffer eternal pain, and all for the sake of his glorious justice, that he had given his power of attorney to a cunning and cruel Italian pope, authorizing him to save the soul of his mistress and send honest wives to hell, if he had given to the nostrils of this god the odor of burning flesh, the incense of the faggot, if he had filled his ears with the shrieks of the tortures, the music of the rack, he would now be known as Saint Voltaire. Instead of doing these things, he willfully closed his eyes to the light of the gospel, examined the Bible for himself, advocated intellectual liberty, struck from the brain the fetters of an arrogant faith, assisted the weak, cried out against the torture of man, appealed to reason, endeavored to establish universal toleration, succored the indigent, and offended the oppressed. He demonstrated that the origin of all religions is the same, the same mysteries, the same miracles, the same impostures, the same temples and ceremonies, the same kind of founders, apostles, and dupes. 
the same promises and threats, the same pretense of goodness and forgiveness, and the practice of the same persecution and murder. He proved that religion made enemies, philosophy friends, and that above the rights of God were the rights of man. These were his crimes. Such a man God would not suffer to die in peace. If allowed to meet death with a smile, others might follow his example, until none would be left to light the holy fires of the auto da fe. It would not do for so great, so successful an enemy of the church to die without leaving some shriek of fear, some shudder of remorse, some ghastly prayer of chattered horror, uttered by lips covered with blood and foam. For many centuries the theologians have taught that an unbeliever, an infidel, one who spoke or wrote against their creed, could not meet death with composure, that in his last moments God would fill his conscience with the serpents of remorse. For a thousand years the clergy have manufactured the facts to fit this theory this infamous conception of the duty of man and the justice of God. The theologians have insisted that crimes against men were and are as nothing compared with crimes against God, that while kings and priests did nothing worse than to make their fellows wretched, that so long as they only butchered and burnt the innocent and helpless, God would maintain the strictest neutrality. But when some honest man, some great and tender soul, expressed a doubt as to the truth of the scriptures, or prayed to the wrong God, or to the right one by the wrong name, then the real God leaped like a wounded tiger upon his victim, and from his quivering flesh tore the wretched soul. There is no recorded instance where the uplifted hand of murder has been paralyzed. No truthful account in all the literature of the world of the innocent child being shielded by God. Thousands of crimes are being committed every day. Men are at this moment lying in wait for their human prey. Wives are whipped and crushed, driven to insanity and death. Little children, begging for mercy, lifting imploring tear-filled eyes to the brutal faces of fathers and mothers. Sweet girls are deceived, lured, and outraged. But God has no time to prevent these things, no time to defend the good and protect the pure. He is too busy numbering hares and watching sparrows. He listens for blasphemy, looks for persons who laugh at priests, examines baptismal registers, watches professors in college who begin to doubt the geology of Moses and the astronomy of Joshua. He does not particularly object to stealing if you don't swear. 
a great many persons have fallen dead in the act of taking god's name in vain but millions of men women and children have been stolen from their homes and used as beasts of burden but no one engaged in this infamy has ever been touched by the wrathful hand of god all kinds of criminals except infidels meet death with reasonable serenity as a rule there is nothing in the death of a pirate to cast any discredit on his profession the murderer upon the scaffold with a priest on either side smilingly exhorts the multitude to meet him in heaven the man who has succeeded in making his home a hell meets death without a quiver provided he has never expressed any doubt as to the divinity of christ or the eternal procession of the holy ghost now and then a man of genius of sense of intellectual honesty has appeared such men have denounced the superstition of their day they have pitied the multitude to see priests devour the substance of the people, priests who made begging one of the learned professions, filled them with loathing and contempt. These men were honest enough to tell their thoughts, brave enough to speak the truth. Then they were denounced, tried, tortured, killed by rack or flame, but some escaped the fury of the fiends who loved their enemies, and died naturally in their beds. It would not do for the church to admit that they died peacefully. That would show that religion was essential at the last moment. Superstition gets its power from the terror of death. It would not do to have the common people understand that a man could deny the Bible, refuse to kiss the cross, contend that humanity was greater than Christ, and then die as sweetly as Torquemada did after pouring molten lead into the ears of an honest man, or as calmly as Calvin after he had burned Servetus, or as peacefully as King David after advising with his last breath one son to assassinate another the church has taken great pains to show that the last moments of all infidels that christians did not succeed in burning were infinitely wretched and despairing it was alleged that words could not paint the horrors that were endured by a dying infidel every good christian was expected to and generally did believe these accounts they have been told and retold in every pulpit of the world protestant ministers have repeated the lies invented by catholic priests and catholics by a kind of theological comity have sworn to the lies told by the protestants upon this point they have always stood together and will as long as the same falsehood can be used by both upon the deathbed subject the clergy grew eloquent when describing the shudderings and shrieks of the dying unbeliever their eyes glitter with delight it is a festival they are no longer men they become hyenas they dig open graves they devour the dead it is a banquet 
unsatisfied still they paint the terrors of hell they gaze at the souls of the infidels writhing in the coils of the worm that never dies they see them in flames in oceans of fire in gulfs of pain in abysses of despair they shout with joy they applaud it is an auto da fe presided over by god but let us come back to voltaire to the dying philosopher he was an old man of eighty-four he had been surrounded with the comforts the luxuries of life he was a man of great wealth the richest writer that the world had known among the literary men of the earth he stood first he was an intellectual monarch one who had built his own throne and had woven the purple of his own power he was a man of genius the catholic god had allowed him the appearance of success his last years were filled with the intoxication of flattery of almost worship he stood at the summit of his age the priests became anxious they began to fear that god would forget in a multiplicity of business to make a terrible example of voltaire toward the last of may seventeen seventy eight it was whispered in paris that voltaire was dying upon the fences of expectation gathered the unclean birds of superstition impatiently waiting for their prey two days before his death his nephew went to seek the cure of saint surplice and the abbe gautier and brought them to his uncle's sick chamber who being informed that they were there said ah well give them my compliments and my thanks the abbe spoke some words to him exhorting him to patience the cure of st surplice then came forward having announced himself and asked of voltaire elevating his voice if he acknowledged the divinity of our lord jesus christ the sick man pushed one of his hands against the cure's coif shoving him back and cried turning abruptly to the other side let me die in peace the cure seemingly considered his person soiled and his coif dishonored by the touch of a philosopher he made the nurse give him a little brushing and went out with the abbe gautier he expired says wagnier on the thirtieth of may seventeen seventy eight at about a quarter past eleven at night with the most perfect tranquillity a few moments before his last breath he took the hand of moran his valet de chambre who was watching by him pressed it and said adieu my dear moran i am gone these were his last words like a peaceful river with green and shaded banks he flowed without a murmur into the waveless sea where life is rest from this death so simple and serene so kind so philosophic and tender so natural and peaceful from these words so utterly destitute of cant or dramatic touch all the frightful pictures all the despairing utterances have been drawn and made 
from these materials and from these alone or rather in spite of these facts have been constructed by priests and clergymen and their dupes all the shameless lies about the death of this great and wonderful man a man compared with whom all of his calumniators dead and living were and are but dust and vermin let us be honest did all the priests of rome increase the mental wealth of man as much as bruno did all the priests of france do as great a work for the civilization of the world as voltaire or diderot did all the ministers of scotland add as much to the such of human knowledge as david hume have all the clergymen, monks, friars, ministers, priests, bishops, cardinals, and popes, from the day of Pentecost to the last election, done as much for human liberty as Thomas Paine? What would the world be if infidels had never been? The infidels have been the brave and thoughtful men, the flower of all the world, the pioneers and heralds of the blessed day of liberty and love, the generous spirits of the unworthy past, the seers and prophets of our race, the great chivalric souls, proud victors on the battlefields of thought, the creditors of all the years to be. In those days the philosophers, that is to say the thinkers, were not buried in holy ground. It was feared that their principles might contaminate the ashes of the just. And they also feared that on the morning of the resurrection they might, in a moment of confusion, slip into heaven. Some were burned and their ashes scattered, and the bodies of some were thrown naked to beasts and others buried in unholy earth. Voltaire knew the history of Adrienne Le Couvreux, a beautiful actress, denied burial. After all, we do feel an interest in what is to become of our bodies. There is a modesty that belongs to death. Upon this subject Voltaire was infinitely sensitive. It was that he might be buried, that he went through the farce of confession, of absolution, and of the last sacrament. The priests knew that he was not in earnest, and Voltaire knew that they would not allow him to be buried in any of the cemeteries of Paris. His death was kept a secret. The Abbe Mignot made arrangements for the burial at Romilly-on-the-Seine, more than a hundred miles from Paris. Sunday evening, on the last day of May, 1778, the body of Voltaire, clad in a dressing-gown, clothed to resemble an invalid, posed to simulate life, was placed in a carriage, at its side a servant whose business it was to keep it in position. To this carriage were attached six horses, so that people might think a great lord was going to his estates. Another carriage followed, in which were a grand-nephew and two cousins of Voltaire. All night they traveled, and on the following day arrived at the courtyard of the abbey. The necessary papers were shown, the mass was performed in the presence of the body, and Voltaire found burial. A few moments afterward the prior, who for charity had given a little earth, received from his bishop a menacing letter forbidding the burial of Voltaire. It was too late. 
he could not then be removed, and he was allowed to remain in peace until 1791. Voltaire was dead. The foundations of state and throne had been sapped. The people were becoming acquainted with the real kings and with the actual priests. Unknown men born in misery and want, men whose fathers and mothers had been pavement for the rich, were rising towards the light, and their shadowy faces were emerging from darkness. Labor and thought became friends, that is, the gutter and the attic fraternized. The monsters of the night and the angels of dawn, the first thinking of revenge and the others dreaming of equality, liberty, and fraternity. For four hundred years the Bastille had been the outward symbol of oppression. Within its walls the noblest had perished. It was a perpetual threat. It was the last and often the first argument of king and priest. In dungeons damp and rayless, its massive towers, its secret cells, its instruments of torture denied the existence of God. In 1789, on the 14th of July, the people, the multitude, frenzied by suffering, stormed and captured the Bastille. The battle-cry was, Vive le Voltaire! In 1791 permission was given to place in the Pantheon the ashes of Voltaire. He had been buried a hundred and ten miles from Paris. Buried by stealth, he was to be removed by a nation. A funeral procession of a hundred miles, every village with its flags and arches, in his honor. All the people anxious to honor the philosopher of France, the savior of Calas, the destroyer of superstition. On reaching Paris, the great procession moved along the Rue Saint-Antoine. Here it paused, and for one night upon the ruins of the Bastille rested the body of Voltaire, rested in triumph, in glory, rested on fallen wall and broken arch, on crumbling stone, still damp with tears, on rusting chain and bar and useless bolt, above the dungeons dark and deep, where light had faded from the lives of men, and hope had died in breaking hearts, the conqueror resting upon the conquered. Throned upon the Bastille, the fallen fortress of night, the body of Voltaire, from whose brain had issued the dawn. For a moment his ashes must have felt the Promethean fire, and the old smile must have illumined once more the face of the dead. While the vast multitude were trembling with love and awe, a priest was heard to cry, God shall be avenged! The grave of Voltaire was violated. The cry of the priest, God shall be avenged, had borne its fruit. Priests, skulking in the shadows, with faces sinister as night ghouls, in the name of the gospel, desecrated the grave. They carried away the body of Voltaire. The tomb was empty. God was avenged. The tomb was empty, but the world is filled with Voltaire's fame. Man has conquered. What 
cardinal, what bishop, what priest raised his voice for the rights of men? What ecclesiastic, what nobleman took the side of the oppressed, of the peasant? Who denounced the frightful criminal code, the torture of suspected persons? What priest pleaded for the liberty of the citizen? What bishop pitied the victim of the rack? Is there the grave of a priest in France on which a lover of liberty would now drop a flower or a tear? Is there a tomb holding the ashes of a saint from which emerges one ray of light? If there be another life, a day of judgment, no God can afford to torture in another world a man who abolished torture in his. If God be the keeper of an eternal penitentiary, he should not imprison there those who broke the chain of slavery here. He cannot afford to make eternal convicts of Franklin, of Jefferson, of Paine, of Voltaire. Voltaire was perfectly equipped for his work, a perfect master of the French language, knowing all its moods, tenses, and declinations, in fact and in feeling, playing upon it as skillfully as Paganini on his violin, finding expression for every thought and fancy, writing on the most serious subjects with the gaiety of a harlequin, plucking jests from the mouth of death, graceful as the waving of willows, dealing in double meanings that covered the asp with flowers and flattery, master of satire and compliment, mingling them often in the same line, always interested himself, therefore interesting others, handling thoughts questions, subjects, as a juggler does balls, keeping them in the air with perfect ease, dressing old words in new meanings, charming, grotesque, pathetic, mingling mirth with tears, wit with wisdom, and sometimes wickedness, logic, and laughter. With a woman's instinct knowing the sensitive nerves just where to touch, hating arrogance of place, the stupidity of the solemn, snatching masks from priest and king, knowing the springs of action and ambition's ends, perfectly familiar with the great world, the intimate of kings and their favorites, sympathizing with the oppressed and imprisoned, with the unfortunate and poor, hating tyranny, despising superstition, and loving liberty with all his heart. Such was Voltaire, writing Oedipus at seventeen, Irene at eighty-three, and crowding between these two tragedies the accomplishment of a thousand lives. End of section 22. Read for you by Ted DeLorme in Fort Mill, South Carolina, on July 25th, 2009.